This is Esther 3 to 4. Sometimes it's hard to realize that we live in a war zone, that we are, this isn't our home. We hear, you know, all the time, well, this isn't our home, we're just passing through, and yet we do all this stuff to make our houses nice and comfortable and kind of just honker down. We like comforts, we like vacations and stuff, you know, but we, in our head, we think, but it's not our home, you know, but still we kind of like skate through life. Um, But there is a warfare going on. Sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's under the surface, just waiting to boil up. I think lately we've been seeing it boil up some. And I think as we go, continue to go closer to when Jesus comes again, it's going to boil up some more. So this story of Esther is not as cute as we think it is. It's a nice little story, right, about, you know, a beautiful queen and a fairy tale and going from rags to riches and everything. But it's a lot uglier, and it shows the darker side of people than we realize, the darker side of us, too. So let's dig into this and see what we're supposed to learn from God looking at these chapters here, 3 and 4. After these things, King Ahasuerus has promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamanitheus, okay? And he advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down, paid homage, paid respect to Haman, for the king so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was a very ungodly man. But what's going on here? This we're starting to lay the groundwork for this warfare, this tension that's going on. God had a purpose in allowing this ungodly man to be promoted. And it's all, the things that God does is all for his glory and all to take care of his people. So here in this kingdom, this vast Persian kingdom, this ungodly man is being raised up to second in command just under the king. He was a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. He was one of Israel's sworn enemies for generations, generations. It's worthwhile for us to take a peek at Exodus 17 to find out really what was going on there. Exodus 17, like verse 8, the Amalekites came and they fought against the Israelites, okay? And this is Moses' time, and he tells Joseph to go out and to battle with them and stuff. And this is the scene where we're familiar with the story where as long as Moses had his hands up in the air, the people would win. And then Moses, uh, uh, and he got tired of standing. They got a rock, he's sitting on a rock, you know. And so, you know, uh, Miriam's brother, or Miriam's husband, and um, her, her and Joshua, um, he was out fighting Aaron, where they're holding up his arms. As long as his arms were in the air, they were winning the battle. Um, but because of all the battle, and they were fighting these people, the Amalekites, this king Amalek, um, the Lord said to Moses in 17, Exodus 17, verse 14, write this in a memorial in a book and recite it to the, in the ears of Joshua 
that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalekite from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. And so the Lord will have war with Amalekite from generation to generation. So Mordecai knew this. Mordecai knew this history of what was going on with the Amalekites. And Agag, and so Haman was a direct descendant of Agag, a mortal sworn enemy to God's people. And God had had committed himself to their extinction, okay? Fast forward in time, and we come to 1 Samuel 15, where we have King Saul, who happens to be a Benjamite. Who else is a Benjamite? Mordecai's a Benjamite. So it's in the same family line here, Mordecai and King Saul. King Saul, in verse 15, um, Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, that the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over Israel. Now, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, camel, whatever, donkey, kill it all. So what does Saul do? He, he goes and he had victory. He, he defeated the king. But he takes plunder for himself. And he doesn't kill King Amalek. He brings all this stuff with him. So Samuel is very distraught at this. And talks to him and says, The Lord doesn't care about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Because that's what he said. I'm bringing all this great stuff home so I can sacrifice it to God. So he doesn't care about that. Behold, it, to obey is better than sacrifice. You have rejected the word of God, therefore God is rejecting you as king. He lost his, his kingdom then. He lost it. And then Saul's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sin. Please pardon me, blah, 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 blah. And, and Samuel turned and walked away. And he, Samuel, or Samuel turns and walked away. And Saul grabs his rose and tears it. And Samuel turns around and says, the kingdom of God has been ripped from your hands this day. Samuel goes and tells him to get King Amalek. I love this, the 32. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And what did Samuel do? He slices him into pieces. What a great story. Slices him into pieces. He hacked Agar to pieces before the Lord in Gilgad. Okay, so here we have generations go by, and here we have Haman is a direct descendant of King Agag. And Mordecai is a direct descendant of Saul. So, this is why he wasn't going to bow the knee to him. It's one thing for Mordecai to bow to a pagan king that God has set in authority over the people on account of their sin, like King Xerxes was, okay? God put that person in authority. It's one thing to do that. It's another thing to bow to a hated enemy whom God had cursed. And the whole point of this is Mordecai did not bow or pay homage 
So let's continue on with that in verse 3, because this is the showdown. This is the piece here where the conflict comes right to its apex. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Hey, why do you transgress the king's commands? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. There it is. There's the battle. Pagans versus God's people. And these people were watching what's going on day after day. Hey, here comes Haman again. You better bow. Is he going to bow? Is he going to bow? He's not going to bow. Notice that Haman never notices it until someone points it out. What's that all about? Haman was not a very secure person. He was prideful, but he wasn't secure. A prideful person that had confidence would be able to go to a crowd and look everybody in the eye as he rode by. But a proudful person who is insecure is just going to, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going in here, are they all, I'm just, I, I can't look at anybody, you know, like that. So he didn't notice it until it was pointed out to him. He was a weak person. But this is the conflict now. Two empires, two kingdoms, the empire of Ahasuerus and the kingdom of God. Which one's going to stand? This, the, the people were watching this happening because it's the Jewish people that identify with Jehovah versus this Persian king who just owns everything. So the book of Esther is playing out this conflict in these people's lives. This is a conflict that's been playing out throughout time, the beginning of time. Satan, who wants to usurp God's position and be in charge of everything. We know how the story ends, but meanwhile, while it's being played out, we need to be encouraged on how we need to play this out. All right? Tension where evil wants to just once again try to destroy God's people, put them into extinction. We've seen it. You know, they tried to kill all the baby boy, two-year-old boys, right? They didn't want the Christ child to come up. We see it with Hitler trying to kill everybody. It's just a constant tension because evil and God and everything and just try, Satan's just rebellious spirit. And if he can't kill people before they become believers, he's going to make the believers' lives miserable. And this is, the, this is the story. He didn't want anybody following God. He didn't want any of that. So the story of Esther is about that also. So the Persian Jews, many of these people were born there in Persia. They didn't go back to the promised land when Ezra was starting to bring people. They could have. They, you know, they had waves of people going back. But these Jews here with Esther, they, were, they chose to stay there in Persia. Um, why? Well, it's home. We've been here a while. Kids are growing up here, whatever. It's not so bad. Yeah, you know, we have to watch ourselves because, you know, the Persians are just, you know, everywhere around us we see evidence of pagan culture and incense being born to their, their gods and stuff. And we hear the marching of soldiers through the streets and we know that, you know, we're under, we're under the thumb of them. We're really not free to, to really express ourselves openly, but we can still pretty much manage to hold our culture and worship our God within this context of the Persian Empire. 
So, the problem is you can give in and start to assimilate when we're in our culture like that, can't we? We can start to compromise with things. Two temptations are rear their ugly head when God's people, who are not of this world, find ourselves in this world that is run by Satan. One of them is assimilation, and the other one is despair. Okay? Esther's people, Mordecai's people, the Persian Jews were not like those who lived around them. And they knew that the overlords at any moment could take everything from them. They could lose their property, their lives, everything. They could not be trusted. So why not? Why not assimilate and become like them? And they'll leave us alone. The more we kind of just go along with it and maybe compromise on some things, they'll leave us alone. We become invisible in a way. We become invisible. There's a Japanese proverb that says, the nail that doesn't stick out as much is less likely to be hammered. I like that. I'll take my nail, my hammer. Sometimes when I see a nail on the fence line, and I'll just kind of whack. It's kind of fun <laughs> to go and just whack them all down and get them back in there. If you're sticking out in a crowd, you're going to get in trouble. What happened with Queen Vasti? She stood up. She stuck out. And she got hammered, didn't she? So you can assimilate, um, and you, no one's going to know. You can make compromises with your faith, and, no, and they're going to leave you alone. Or you can be in despair. Woe is that? This is horrible. This is, you know, I, I, just, I, fight, I don't want to do that. I don't know what to do. But we'll say this. Despair is when you lose hope. And those people who give up hope are easily assimilated. It's like they throw their hands in the air. We'll just go along with the crowd. We'll just do what they're going to tell us to do. They want to put us on a lockdown and not let us get together and worship together in our churches. Okay, we'll just kind of go. One small example. So we have throughout history examples especially in our um, entertainment community. Um, there was a wonderful Broadway play, The Fiddler on the Roof, that ran for a long, long time. And it's a story of the Russian Jews who were in a position the way Esther's people were, okay? They were Jews in Russia, and it was a heavy-handed overlord on there. And so then they had to balance, it was a balancing act on how they are going to maintain their Jewishness and their culture and the, the fun of you know, the musical stuff, and how are they going to balance on that rooftop and, have, and, and live their lives out honoring God in a, in a world that was very hostile to them. Another one that might be kind of interesting, I don't know, are any of you guys Trekkers in here? Star Trek? Are you? The Next Generation? They had the Federation, and the opposition to the Federation was the Borg, right? The Borg. And the Borg's whole goal was to incorporate all of their enemies into the collective, bring them all in, okay? 
And they extracted from them everything that was valuable, but the whole idea was to make them like them. And their slogan was, resistance is futile. You must assimilate. Satan can have that too. He whispers that in our ear all the time. Resistance is futile. You must assimilate. If you go out there and profess you're a Christian, you're going to get made fun of. You might as well just lay low, okay? Today, the same things happen, and it's getting worse. We are in the world, but we're not of the world, okay? We find ourselves balancing act on when we can speak out because we don't want to lose our job, but if we profess we're a Christian, we're going to be, you know, fired or something. I mean, it's, it's getting very... The, the, the two kingdoms are coming together here. So, what do we have? We have... Mordecai finally paying attention and seeing that uh, we have Haman finally seeing that Mordecai is not bowing down to him and it's pointed out to him. He comes filled with fury, but he's disdained just to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He despises this. He probably knows of the history too and all these Jews that are there and just despise them and wanted to keep them all under their thumb, bowing down in homage. And probably many of them were, probably all of them were except for Mordecai because they were assimilating. Mordecai is not, this is a line of the sand that he is not going to bend the knee because of the historical context of all this and what God had said about these people. So, He holds his ground. Haman's pride is wounded. Okay? And they start to throw throw the lots, cast the lots to find out when they're going to cause their destruction of these people. What are they going to do about it? And they're throwing their lots, throwing their lots, and making record of it. And they have the massacre of all the Jews then. is going to be 11 months down the road. And God planted that, 11 months. There's time for things to happen here in these 11 months. So you see the tension, you see the war, and there's a problem because at this point, Mordecai is the only one that's standing up and saying, no, I'm not going to bow to this. He's told Esther to keep her Jewishness concealed. So she is in the palace, probably having a fine time assimilating with all the pamperedness and all the wonderful things of being taken care of there. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. She might miss her people, whatever. But she's kind of holed up in a very isolated place. Okay, verse 8. Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providence of your kingdom, which was true. The Jews were very scattered throughout the area. Their laws are different from those of every other people. That's true. They have the laws of the commandments. They have God's laws. And they do not keep the king's laws. That's a half-truth. Mordecai is not bowing to Haman, but for overall, they kind of went along with it, and the Persian Empire pretty much tolerated the minor differences that were there. Then he says, It is not to the king's prophet to tolerate them. We know that that's a lie. Because what did God tell Abraham? I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you. So, this is a lie. If it pleases the king, 
Let there be a decree that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into your hands, O king. Um, so, that's a lot of money. He didn't have it. Where was he going to get it from? The plunder of the Jews, slaughtering the Jews. He was going to take all of their plunder, all of their wealth, and from that he would, there's probably going to be plenty more, but he would give some of that back to the king. It's a very vague proposal. Um, there's not a lot of detail he's presenting to the king. The king doesn't know how many people he's talking about. The king doesn't know which people he's talking about. But, ooh, the money, he did say how much money. Hey, I'll, that sounds like a good deal. King agrees to do that in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3. King t- takes off his ring and gives it to Haman signifying the fact that he is second in command, he had the king's seal, that he could go and pronounce all this stuff. And the king said to him, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Another mistake, because these weren't his people to give. Okay, These were God's people. Um, so... King really didn't know what he was going through. He didn't know what he was agreeing upon. But we see that they stick out this, get the scribes together, and they start writing the decree. All you know, they didn't have Xerox machines or copy machines, and so they were all writing away and everything and passing it out and getting it to all the people all over. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's providence with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. What a slaughter that would be, and to plunder their goods. Now, I have to point out how they did this. From the Greek historian Herodias, he writes about the Persian postal service that only carried royal correspondence. This is the beginning of the Pony Express. Their slogan was this, Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these courageous couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. So this is the beginning of the Pony Express, these quick, fast air horses that they would just take off and put this stuff all around there. So, there you have it. Everybody knows. Everyone starts to lament and cry and, and scratch their head and what's going on with all this stuff. Um, it's a sad situation. The king and Haman sit down and have a drink. Okay? The Jewish people are going to be annihilated. They're sitting down and they're toasting because the king thought that he did really well. He thought that this is a good thing. But he really didn't know what he has agreed to. I honestly think that. He was so dim-witted that... I don't think, and he's liked his drink, as we know from all his fests, you know, his feasts, that he really just didn't know what he had stamped his okay onto. But the citizens of the empire who knew these Jewish people as their neighbors were very perplexed because they knew that they were good citizens. It's a war. It's a hidden spiritual conflict that's been going on since the beginning of time. Once again, Satan is rearing his ugly head, working through Haman to annihilate God's people. 
the enmity towards God and his people, it's just being manifested now in this situation. But it's ongoing. There's never a time out with it. There's never a time out with it. Um, it's been going on since the garden. Sometimes we feel it, and sometimes we don't. If we assimilate, we don't feel it as much. Um, but it's an ongoing thing, constant. So we need to be on our guard. We need to be protected by the whole armor of God because it is a battle. We don't know when the enemy's going to pop up his ugly head again. Mordecai didn't know. They thought they would just be doing this. He had no idea Haman was going to be raised to this position, but there it was. Had he realized that this would be the outcome of him standing up, would he have not done that? I don't know. I don't know. When you're convicted, when you're called by God to stand up, you know, we can't really do what-ifs with God because they don't exist. (laughs) God had him find out. God had him stand up before he found out because God was using this as great providence. And here's the other thing. God likes to make it seem utterly impossible, closing all the doors. So when he swoops down and saves his people, it's magnificent. You can't point to anybody else but God who's doing it. He's bringing them to the brink of extinction. He brings us to the brink of despair. He brings us to, there's no way out. My gosh, what are we going to do? We don't have any money to pay the bills, whatever, you know, whatever only to help us turn to God and let him find miraculously. I bet you we all have stories in here of how God has done that in our lives in one way or the other. So he wants his people, he wants the world to know we're his witness that he is a God and his providence and he's taking care of us. He's a good God and only God has done this because it was so miraculous. All right. So chapter 4, a lot of mourning, a lot of sackcloth going on. That's just black goat hair that was real scratchy and ashes and crying out. And Mordecai goes to just to the entrance of the king's gate. He's not allowed to go into the king's gate with mourning. You don't, you don't bring that kind of rubble into the king's presence. And he's wailing and crying. And all the people throughout all the provinces, once they've read what the courier has brought, are just lamenting what's happened here. Great mourning among the Jews. And they were fasting and weeping um, and just mourning. And when they do that, when God, when there's no other hope, no other way, no other place to turn, the, the fasting and the mourning is a turning to God. It is a showing a, a sorrow over sin, a dependence on God. It's almost like God was getting his people ready for what's going to come out in the next chapters coming up. He was, there was a turn and a repentance by the people. And it might take a, whoa, this is terrible, before we really are stopping our tracks and realize we need God. What have we done? We've drifted away from God. So the whole, God's people in the Persian Empire were, were, were repenting and, and, and calling out to God in, in independence of it. So... But Esther is in her little ivory tower. She has assimilated with the Persian 
people, empire and stuff, and she's closed off, very secluded and everything. But she gets wind of it through some of her um, servants and stuff, what's going on. Your uncle or your cousin is down there, you know, kind of acting like a fool, (laughs) whatever. So she doesn't understand, so she gets some clothes together. She says, please, Mordecai, knock it off. You're embarrassing everybody down here. She doesn't know what's going on. He rejects the clothes, sends them back, um, and mean, meanwhile, she sends somebody else down there to find out what, what is going on. She sends Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who was appointed to attend her, and he goes down there into the square to talk to Mordecai, and he tells him what has happened. He told him the, the type, the amount of money, the bounty that was on everybody's head, and the total destruction of the Jews was happening. Now, Mordecai, his first appeal isn't to God, is it? His first appeal is to go to the king through Esther. He knew that a decree cannot be undone. It cannot be changed. It's a hopeless situation, but he still attempts to try to get through Esther to get to the king. Once Esther finds out about it and he tells Esther, it's a command in verse 8. Mordecai gives him a copy of the written decree. It goes and shows it to Esther, explain it to her and command her to go to the king, to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of his people. So, Hathak goes back and tells Esther what Mordecai has said. And Esther is, wow, this is pretty, pretty big news. Esther's world is coming crushing in. The, the battle is now in her palace room. Her people are going to be destroyed by the people that she has assimilated with. And what is she to do? And her dear cousin who raised her is commanding her to go to the king. So she's weighing in her head and knows that if she goes to the king, anyone, anyone goes to the king without him calling on them, the, the, it's death. That's the only, it's just death, unless he holds up his little scepter and says, okay, well, I'm in, okay, I'll see what they have to say. They look interesting to me. But if not, it's just they're dead. They're dead. And she hasn't been called into the king in a whole month. King didn't sleep by himself. King had all these concubines, hundreds of concubines. He was totally entertaining himself with all these other women. Maybe forgot about beautiful Queen Esther. Who knows? But she just wasn't on good standing ground to be able to go in. I mean, there was a lot at stake for her. She had no idea what was going on. But she says this. Well, goes back, tells Mordecai all that through these people. And Mordecai sends back a second request in 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that to yourself, that the king's palace, you will escape any more than all these other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, 
Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. In other words, God's plan is going to follow through. God will save his people. He's not going to let them perish. But if Esther is disobedient and stays quiet, then God's going to use somebody else to do it, and she's probably going to perish. But at this point, I think Mordecai really knew the pieces were coming together for him because he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It started to click. The dots started to kind of line up. This was God's plan. Esther, you've got to go. Mordecai knew in his heart completely that God would save his people. So Esther's playing it out in her head. She had to take courage. She had to have the wisdom. She had to make a reason, some kind of a choice here. It was clear it was a life-changing choice that she had to make. She could no longer live on the fence. She could no longer live with her Jewishness concealed. She could no longer live as an undercover believer. We're convicted by that sometimes too, aren't we? So she makes her decision in 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Sosa and have a fast and pray. And then she says this, Me and my women will also do that. That is her stand of Her choice has been made. She's standing with the Jewish people. She's in community with them now. She's going to do what they're going to do. She is separating from the whole Persian Empire and all the stuff that's going, and she's publicly, at least in her little area there, proclaiming that she is with these Jewish people because they're going to do this together. It was identifying herself with them in unity, in fellowship, in unity of purpose. And she was determined to be obedient to Mordecai no matter what the cost. At this point, she may not have believed that her life was going to be spared. Because she goes on to say, she'll do what she's going to do, and I will fasten something. And she says to the king, if I perish, I will perish. Mordecai knows that they're going to be saved. Mordecai believes that God's going to come through, this is going to happen, not sure how it's going to happen, but he believed in a God of miracles, king's decrees can't be changed, but he is, his faith is strong at this point. Esther, on the other hand, isn't so sure, but what she's saying is basically, okay, um, I'm going to obey him, because he's been such a good man, he, you know, and I honor him and respect him, no matter what the cost. It is very similar to Genesis 43:13. Genesis 43, the end of Genesis, Joseph, um, and Joseph's there's a famine going on and everything like that, and he sends his boys into Egypt. Um, Joseph's there, or um, yeah, to send the boys into Egypt. Um, and they bring the food back. Israel. Joseph's in Egypt. There we go. Joseph's in Egypt. He's assimilated <laughs> to what's going on. But I think he kept true to his 
God also. But anyways, he's like second in command too. And he's there and the brothers come. They don't recognize him. They give him food and send him back. But he tells them, don't return unless you bring your little brother. Because he knew he had a little brother, Benjamin. We're all Benjamites here. Saul's a Benjamite. Mordecai's a Benjamite. Don't come back unless you bring your little brother. So they go, they leave, they eat up all the food, and Israel's father says, you know, we need some more food. And they say, hey, we've got, we got to take little brother. And he doesn't want to send him. Their father is distraught about this. And he says in Genesis 43:11, if it must be so, then do this. Take some fruit and everything like that and everything. May God Almighty grant you mercy before this man, Joseph, and may he send back your brother and your other brother and Benjamin. And for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. If I perish, I perish. If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. In other words, he had no choice but to do this. And he was willing to pay the cost of losing all of it. And that's what we saw with, that's what we see with Esther. She's willing to lose it all to be in obedience to what Mordecai is asking. She honestly thought she was going to die. But it's a, a picture of an attitude that we need to have where we totally surrender all to God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. And Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We believe in God. We believe in God. But in practice, do we really react to life's crises like we believe in God, like our theology is played out, or do we respond like a virtual atheist? Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, throw our hands up, we worry, we bite our nails, whatever, panic. And I've told you before, anxiety is a sin. Um, but the point of co- that comes together with Mordecai and our world comes together when the hostile nature of this world is made very clear. The world is at enmity with God and with us. It's a couple of verses in John. I'm just going to read and we're going to close. Because Jesus, we learn this, John 15, 18 and 19. He tells us, the world hated him. The world's going to hate us. It's a given. Don't make friends with the world. John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. This is where Mordecai was. Maybe Esther was getting there. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you. He has said these things to us that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We've got to have this mindset out there. It's not going to get any easier later. But we were born for such a time as this to live here and he will equip us to live here and take a stand. Be that nail that sticks up. Be the nail, be the focal point, be the light 
that sticks up because there's a lot of people out there that really need to have the answers of Jesus Christ. And we need to be willing to risk embarrassment, losing a job, whatever, to shine a light for someone else that might see it. God, we are thankful that we're yours. We're thankful that your providence, you take care of us, that all things are working together for your glory and for our good. Give us a bold spirit. Take away the spirit of fear and replace it with a boldness, a, 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 a blinders that are only focused on you as you meet our needs every single moment of the day to your glory. We love you, Jesus. Amen.